is ready. So that means you're going to, if you go and get coffee, you're going to, you'll all leave, won't you? <laughs> is there any beer out there? Or gin? Oh, oh, now they're going. Okay, well, there's coffee there and whatever that means. Um, yeah, thanks to who? Buck and Julie. Okay, 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 Jamie, whoever, whoever, whoever. Kay gets me a coffee every morning now. Yeah. That's good, isn't it? Starbucks. Do you know what? We are planting more churches in England than, than Starbucks are opening. Now, that's a big deal because Starbucks is getting big in England. Okay, the Word. Let's get to the Word. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to turn to the book of, the book of Judges. And uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. I guess in preparation, preparing this Word, very much had in mind what was shared last week by Josh and uh, what Bruce spoke about when we had the supper together on the Friday evening, that we are entering into a new season. And I, 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 sometimes we say things, but I, and, um, but I think that's what is happening here. It's a, a, it's, it's, it's a new day. Something is happening. We're, we have a sense of that. So it's really important that we sort of get hold of what God wants to do and then sort of say, well, wh where do we slot in uh, with that? Um, if you read through particularly your Old Testament, you will find there are cycles in the Bible. There are uh, things that happen. And if you go through church history, you'll find that cycle happens time and time again. God raises up a generation usually with a significant leader, uh, that generation are obedient and fulfill the purposes of God in their generation. But then you find so often another generation uh, that follows fails to do the same that that previous generation did. They disobey God's commands and they displease God. And sadly, that's, that's what seems to happen, not just in the Scriptures, but that's the story of the history of the church. In the Old Testament, a whole book is given over to teach us about those cycles. It's, a, it's the book of Judges. Judges spans just over three, 300 years, and you find this cycle repeats itself time and time again. So what I want to do, I want to read a chunk from Judges, Judges chapter 2. And uh, through to um, come on. So we're going to read from Judges chapter two, verse um, verse six. Okay. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at um, Timnath Heris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge who sa and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the way to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left before he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations left, the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given to their forefathers. And then just quick, quickly turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And I'll, uh, I want to link this up with this passage a little bit later, later on. Passage that you know well, I'm sure. Verse 10, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And then Paul adds this, Pray for me also that whenever I may open my mouth, words will be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Let's just pray together. Father, we know that your word can change things. We know that, Lord, as we receive your word, so, Lord, something is birthed by the Spirit in our hearts and our spirits. And Lord, we thank you for this new season you're bringing Clark Falk into. And we pray this morning you'll birth something in our hearts. It will give us understanding and revelation. But more than just that, Lord, you'll birth something in us that will bring action which will bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. As I read through that passage from Judges, you could see the cycle there, couldn't you? Yes? That cycle, a generation was raised up, great leaders like Moses, Joshua. God makes a covenant with them. The covenant was to, to take the land, and they begin to take the land. Isn't it? It's, it's interesting. God gives it to us, but we have to take it. Okay? As he saves us, but we have to work out our salvation. And uh, so they, under Joshua and Caleb and those, those heroes of the faith that we have here, they did what God asked them to do. And God was with them. And he went out as they fought their battles and they began to take the land. But then we read another generation. I, and I just want to read you some things here quickly, five things about this generation that came after Joshua and Caleb. It says this, they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They had no sense of history. No history, no mission. We are motivated from, by truth in order to do great things for God. They neither knew God and they had no knowledge or they wanted no knowledge. It wasn't just ignorance, it was willfulness. They did not want to follow the Lord. Secondly, they committed gross evil they served Baal and Ashtoreth. Ash when you served Ashtoreth, you sacrificed your newborn babes to that god and goddess. Can you just imagine where Israel has come from and come to? This is vile wickedness as well as all the uh, immorality that they got engaged in as they worshipped these 
gods of Baal. And it says that God handed them over. This is, this is God. God handed them over to raiders, bandits who came and plundered them, and they became the slaves of those that they were told to go and conquer in the Lord's name and his strength. And God used these events, it says, to test them and teach them warfare and obedience. In other words, to get them back on track. They had been called by God to be warriors, to be those who would fight for the Lord. Instead, they became slaves. And it says here that God used their enemies. That was God's grace. That was God's grace. That God allowed these enemies to test them so that they would get them back on track and they would become warriors rather than slaves. And when they cried to the Lord, when they groaned before God, he raised up what we call judges, but really it's saviors or deliverers. And that's what God did. Now, if you read through the book of, the book of Judges, one of the things you will discover that there were some strange judges or deliverers that God raised up. And I really want to build around um, one of them this morning, some stuff that I want to say to you. And uh, in verse 31 of chapter 3, we got a little verse here, and it's the only thing we know about this judge, and his name is Shamgar. And after Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. So you're asking the question, or at least you're thinking it, what the Dickens is he going to do with a verse like that? Yes? That's what you're thinking. Because this is the only mention we have of him, except he does get a mention, but no further details. Who was Shamgar? Anybody know? No, we don't know who he was. It's not even a Hebrew name. In fact, Anath was, was, a, was, was, a, was a goddess that was worshipped by the Canaanites. So the son of Anath, who was named after a goddess, it's weird, isn't it? So who was he? Who was his father? When, when Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, there were tribes that came to them that saw the God of Israel, saw what he had done, saw what he was doing, and they became converts to the Hebrew God. And so more than likely, this is someone who wasn't born as a Hebrew, but who was adopted, he would have been circumcised, and he would have been part of the nation of, of Israel. What was he? Well, he certainly wasn't a soldier. He was no warrior, was he? He was a farmer. How do we know that? Because the only thing that he had around his farm, he had, he had nothing metal. He had an ox goad. What's an ox goad? Well, it's a bit of stick with a point on the end and you stick it up the backside of a cow or whatever and it gets them moving. Yes, that's an ox goad. Yes, are we there? Yeah, I'm sure some of you have tried it sometime. Probably done it with your kids. Get them moving. Okay, so... So, and we know that he was a slave to these Philistine bandits. Every year, he got his harvest in, got it ready, and these marauders, 
these bandits, these raiders would come in and they would take basically what was there and just leave him enough for him and his family to live on so that they could be served by Shamgar and his family so the next time they came round, the next year, they would plunder again. And this went on and on for years. Basically, this man, who was supposed to be under covenant to God, uh, became a slave to God's enemies. What a miserable existence. Can you just imagine it? I doubt whether his wife ever smiled. She had nothing to smile about. I bet his kids were really skinny, scrawny. Probably didn't have much to wear. No, you haven't got much to eat. You're going to be skinny. Their diet was poor. There was no joy in the family. If you've seen that classic Western, The Magnificent Seven, who's a fan? Yul Brynner. Yes? Yeah. Steve McQueen. Yeah, well, they're not here. <laughs> Eli Wallach is, but Steve McQueen's not there. There's no saviors here. There's no, there's no guns for hire, as you would say. Okay. There's no one who's coming to the rescue. What a miserable life being a slave when you're meant to be a warrior. But God had plans for Shamgar. And I can just imagine him, because bandit time is due. They're going to be coming soon. The harvest is there. His barns are full, but he knows he's not going to be enjoying the fruit of his labor. And he knows soon over the horizon, he will, he will see those coming on their horses, and they'll be riding into his farm. And he sits down one day, and the Spirit of God begins to stir him because he begins to recall, to remember the stories that his father told him, stories about Moses and how Moses dealt with Pharaoh, about the parting of the Red Sea, the miracles, the work of Joshua and the battles that were won. And as he begins to relive these truths as the Spirit of God is reminding him of these things and the Spirit of God comes on him. He is stirred. He's invigorated. He's fired up. And he comes to a resolve, and it's this. Better to die with dignity than live with dishonor. And as he's thinking these things, he hears a sound. Not that far away now. It's the sound of horses. It's of hooves. It's of the snorting of the horses. And he looks around for a weapon. And there is no weapon. All he can see is the old stick with a point on the end that he shoves up the backside of these cows to get them moving. Only a sharpened. What's that against 600 trained soldiers? But he stands his ground. And I can just imagine his wife and his kids. What is dad doing mum they're gonna kill him this is madness shamgar for goodness sake man what have you been drinking what have you been taking come on in 
They'll kill you. Well, it's better to have, better to have a little than be without a father. But no, the Spirit of God is on this man. It's his time. Better to die with dignity than become a slave. And you just imagine Eli Wallach is riding in with his banditos. Shamgar, what are you doing? For goodness sake, man, what's that in your hand? Oh, come on, give us a break. There's 600 of us. Shamgar, we'll do a deal. We'll leave you a little bit more this time. But you belong to us. But the Holy Spirit is on him. <laughs> and that weapon, which looks very insignificant to a man that the Spirit of God is on, is mighty to do exploits. And as we say, the rest is history. Now you might look at this and say, come on, you don't really believe that, do you, Raylo? Well, actually, I do. <laughs> I do. I have no problem believing in that no more than I have problems believing in the resurrection. It's, it's a fact. It's, it's happened. It's history. <laughs> and as they say, the rest is history. And Israel is saved, and Shamgar is their saviour. Call it revival, call it renewal, call it whatever you like. Praise God, the cycle comes to an end, and Israel is now on track once again. Sadly, that happens for 300 years, but God is faithful, and he, 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 he allowed Shamgar to go through that cycle, to come to his right mind, to come to an understanding of what he was called for, and then to be the warrior that God always intended him to be. So what can we, what can we learn from this? I just want to just share briefly a couple of things here this morning because they're important to us. The first thing is this. Shamgar had an identity crisis. He, he, was a, he saw himself as a slave and he behaved like one. And it was not until he really fully grasped who he was that he began to serve God in the way that God had called him to. And this is, this is so, so important that he saw himself as a slave, but in actual fact, he was a son. Isn't it interesting? When, when, when the disciples of Jesus came to him, you find it in Acts 11, they came to Jesus and they said, John the Baptist teaches his disciples to pray. Will you teach us to pray? And Jesus did not do the evangelical thing. I mean it seriously. He said, when you come to pray, say Abba, which is daddy or papa. It's a very familiar, it's what the kids call their dad. He didn't do the evangelical thing. The evangelical thing would be to say this. When you come before God, remember you're a sinner. And the first thing you need to do is get yourself right with God before you pray. Anybody told that when they got saved? Well, I was. Never got much further than that. But Jesus didn't do that. Because for Jesus, our identity is just so important. He said, when you come and pray, pray Abba. You don't come as a sinner. You come as a slave. You come as a son. You don't come as a, a slave. 
You come as one who inherits the promises of God. We have status in God. Not that we can boast because it's all of grace. But when we don't understand that, it affects the way we live. It, it affects what we believe. It affects our faith. In fact, it affects everything because God who lifts us up, we put ourselves down again. And this is what Shamgar had done. He was he had put himself down. Now he comes to realize who he is. The Holy, Cons- Holy Spirit convinces him of his, of his sonship. And God reminds him of the covenant promises. Dignity is restored. God wants to restore dignity to us. And it's not that we boast because it's all of grace, but we do come as sons and not as slaves. And, uh, and, if, and, and how we live will depend on how we see ourselves. So, so important. That's why that passage I read in Ephesians, isn't it interesting that Paul says in chapter 6, finally. I remember years ago wanting to do a series out of Ephesians, and I was going to start in Ephesians 6. Then it dawned on me, what a stupid place to start, <laughs> because it's finally. And if you, if you go to the beginning of Ephesians, what does it tell us? It tells us who we are. It tells us our status. It tells us that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen to be in Christ. We were predestined to be his. A couple of weeks ago, I preached and the basis of it was that God doesn't need me, but he desires me. And my, that, that prophetic uh, encouragement we had earlier on, that, that God delights over us. But if you're a slave, no one delights over you. That's the way you feel about yourself. So identity is so important, folks. And we have an enemy who works hard to convince us that we are other than who we are. And uh, that's, why, that's why Paul begins this great letter to the Ephesians. He says, this is who you are. This is who you were. You were once. You know, you were once under the prince of the power of the air. This is who you are by grace. Then he tells us how to live, how to, how, to, how to live in such a way as to please God. It's all there. And then he says, now finally, put on the armor. What is the armor? The armor's truth. So put on the armor. That's truth. We believe in who we are and what God has called us to. Then we take up the weapons of our warfare. And you see, we do have an enemy. You see, when you think of, when you think of Jesus, Jesus never had an identity crisis, but he did have to come to know who he was. That's the wonder of the incarnation. And the, the amazing thing about the incarnation, that it encourages us in our search for our identity. Jesus is a baby in a manger. What does he do? He sucks and poops. He relies upon his mother and his father. He is vulnerable. He has no understanding that he is almighty God in a manger. He doesn't know that because he goes through the same process as we do. He comes to understand who he is. How does he do that? Through the scriptures, through fellowship in prayer, from teachers, 
from encouragement. And he comes to that place where at the age of 13, when he stays behind in Jerusalem, and his mum and dad give him a bad time over it. said, son, this is not fair the way you're treating us. He says, mum, don't you remember? You pondered all this in your heart. You knew one day I would be about my father's business. So he came to that place. That's, that's how we get there. And when we're born again, the Spirit of God and the Word of God convinces us of who we are. But if we don't get the Word of God into us, the Spirit can't convince us of anything because He works on the Word. And so we come to that place where Jesus came. This is so important for us, folks, because identity comes before mission. And I would say this, if you go, if you go on mission without knowing really who you are, and who you represent and what resources you've got, you'll get gobbled up. That is, that, that, is, that, is, that is true of what is happening. So often we think, we've got to work for God. No, we, we've got to first know God and belong to him. And that mission will come out of that. And that's so, so important. And you find as you go through um, the scriptures and through church history, you know, some of the greatest had their struggles. John the Baptist, we're told, was one of the greatest. And yet, he came to a place, he's in prison, he probably knows what's going to happen to him, and he gets depressed, he gets down. And he sends, he, some of his disciples go to Jesus and say, are you the one, or is there, is, 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 is there someone else that's going to be the Messiah? You say, hold on, John, you're the one who had this revelation this is the Lamb of God that's taken away the sins of the world. You saw the Spirit descend as a dove. How can it be so daft? Because it's got an enemy. And you're like that, and I'm like that at times. And we've got an enemy. He works, he works overtime, and he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's just got a lot of little demon workers who are pretty skilled at what they do. And that's why Jesus says, when you pray, pray every day a prayer of deliverance. Deliver me from the evil one and lead me not into temptation. People say to me, are you into deliverance ministry? Every day for myself. Every day. Deliver us not into the hands of the evil one. And you know, you think of, you know William Carey? We call him the father of modern missions, but he very much learned from David Brainard and from Jonathan Edwards, and they learned mainly from the, the Moravians. But that he, 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 he pushed the Baptists in England, who were very hyper-Calvinists at the time. Their view was, why go to India with the gospel? God wants to save the Indians. He can do it without your help or without mine. But he wouldn't have it. And he, he pleaded for the apostolic ministry as an ongoing ministry. And eventually he went, he went to India. Read the story or another time I'll come, I'll give you a, a church history lecture on Carey. But you know, great man that he was. But when you read his diaries, when he first got to India, he says things like, I am so depressed, I never want to see another Sabbath. <laughs> Hold on, we, we, we enjoy coming together on Sunday. I mean, he said, I am useless. What am I doing here? Am I really called of God? You know, and when you read the life of this man, how could someone get, get so depressed? Because he's got an enemy. <laughs> lost three, three wives he lost. And sons. 
in it all. John Wesley often doubted his salvation. John Wesley, great, great revivalist in the Great Awakening. I mean, you read of all these people, they all had their struggles. Of course we're going to have struggles. A young woman used to be in the church that Sue and I led for, we were there for 37 years. Some of you have been there, Biggin Hill. And great, great kid, uh, very gifted, but she had no confidence at all in herself, none whatsoever. She was, I mean, she spent a lot of time with Sue and I used to come to our house and we would have to walk through with her through all her exams, her first lot of exams, then a higher exam, then university entrance, then university. And to be honest, she used to wear us down, didn't it, Sue? She think she said, I'll never get a husband. I'm not good looking. And she was a nice, wonderful looking girl. In the end, I said to her, Leslie, I was at my wit's end with her. Leslie, every day you come home from work or college or whatever it is, you open your Bible, you go to Ephesians 1, and you read the first 16 verses there. It's all about who you really are. And you say to the Holy Spirit, for goodness sake, convince me of this. I tell you what. You, if, if, I remember sharing this in the fellowship back at Biggin Hill some years ago. And then I said, any of you know who this is? It's Leslie. Leslie? She's Gareth, Gareth Wales' wife who leads the church at Biggin No, nobody could believe it. The Word transformed her. And the Holy Spirit convinced her. We need the Spirit's convincing power day in, day out. And that's what happened to Shamdar. He was convinced that he was to be a warrior, not to be a slave. Second thing I want to share with you, and this will be the, the final thing, that we have weapons of warfare. We are a very resourced people. Humanly speaking... That ox goad didn't look too bright, did it? I mean, can he, well, it must have been silly, wasn't it, really? This guy there, 600 on horses, uh, clad with armor and weaponry, looking down on this puny little guy with an ox goad. Did not look significant. We're not significant. We don't look significant, do we? Well, you don't. And I know what you're thinking about me, so it's not a problem. We don't look significant. The world doesn't believe we're significant. The world thinks we're mad. They think we're idiots for even being here this morning. You believe in this God? You think you're here to change the world? Well, we're not very significant. But the resources he's given us are mighty to dare down strongholds. Corinth was a vile city. In fact, there was a saying amongst the ancient Greeks, and it's this, if you were so vile, you had been Corinthianized. We have a saying in England, being sent to Coventry. You don't have the same thing here, but Coventry is a city, and uh, if, you, if you really were the, the, the pits, it was, you'd been sent to Coventry. I don't know why Coventry. Quite a nice place, really. 
So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, in all that was going on in that vile city, and why, why, why did God raise up a church in Corinth? To change Corinth, to influence Corinth. That's why he did it, okay? Not so they could have nice charismatic meetings on Sunday, although they did have very nice charismatic meetings on Sunday. Got out of hand every now and then. I wish these meetings got out of hand more. I, se- I mean that seriously. I mean that seriously, folks. We are rich in gifts in this church, but we don't use them enough. Okay. I wish I had to preach from 1 Corinthians 14 because you were so over the top in tongues and prophecies, healings and all these things. I hope we get there. 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And by the way, I'm not just speaking to you because as I point the finger at you, I've got three pointed back at me. I'm part of this. This is what Paul says. He says, for though we live in the world, okay, we live, we live in the now, but we're living also in the not yet as we live in this world, okay? We're part of the not, not yet. Do you understand that? The kingdom has come, but the kingdom will come, okay? So we're bringing, we bring the kingdom that is not yet into the now, okay? Okay, now it's going to come in its fullness when the Lord wraps it all up. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Wow. Sounds good, doesn't it? We have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of obedience once your obedience is complete. So Paul speaks there about strongholds. What are strongholds? It's what binds people in their mind. It's what binds influences. It's control. It's that which is demonic. That which causes people to behave in ways that are ugly. My, uh, my grandson, he's 21 when we get back. He is, isn't he? 21 when we get back. And he's been a soccer player and uh, been through the academy, and so he's a good soccer player. When he was about 14, um, my son-in-law and myself, we took him to see a football match. We got some tickets for a team called West Ham. They play in the English Premier Division, and uh, quite a journey to get there. But we got there, and a great atmosphere, and all the rest of it. And um, West Ham don't normally win, so... Um, but the opposite, opposite side weren't very happy when West Ham did win. So we're coming out of the stadium, and all of a sudden we see a machete appear. Seriously. This machete appear, and knives are coming out, and all sorts of things are happening. Somebody ran past me with a brick and took out the side of someone's face. All hell was let loose. Policemen on horses waded in with their truncheons. It was war. It was mayhem. 
I think, what caused that? Strongholds caused that. I, we got hold of my grandson. The first bus that was just passing by, we put him on it and, and got on it ourselves. We just got out of it. One guy, they were just beating him, and he was up against the wall, and the wall collapsed where they were and beat him. I thought, blimey, this is a soccer match, for goodness sake. We're supposed to be enjoying ourselves. All hell was let loose. That's strongholds. Why, why, why do people perpetrate evil acts in the world we live in? It's strongholds. It's that because Satan has taken over their mind, which causes them to act wickedly. That's strongholds. <laughs> it may be motivated from there, but we don't deal with it up there. We deal with it down here through the gospel. What is, what is the most powerful weapon that we have? Yes. Who said that? Well done, sir. The most powerful weapon we have is prayer. Now, you, you can go over the top on prayer, so everything's intercession. We've got to get everything in balance, folks. Okay, I don't need, need to say that, because, that, that, you know, sometimes, you know, the intercession movement, I think, come on, there's the gospel, there's, there's a lot more, there's the body of Christ, there's mission. But it is, I believe, the most powerful weapon. Why? Because it gives us access and appeal to the highest authority in the universe. Can you just imagine when we, when we, 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 we come to God with such freedom because of Jesus, and we can say, "Papa." Often, I in the morning when I get up pretty early, I say, "Well, I'm here again, Lord. You know who it is. My dad, my papa. I'm not being disrespectful because he's Almighty, as well as Abba. But we have access." to the highest authority. And if we really believe that, we do it. We don't do it because we don't believe it. That's why I wanted to link this with Ephesians chapter 6. Because Paul says, we put on the armour of God. And that, that armour, as I said earlier, is, is, tr is truth. And we come with all that truth in who we are, and the fact that we have access to the Father, that's truth. The fact that we're sons, not slaves, that's truth. The fact is we can ask anything that we want, everything that's in his will, and he will give us, that's truth. We come with that. And then Paul says, and pray with all sorts of prayers in the spirit and with intercession. Most powerful weapon that God has given us. And when you read those early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, it's soaked in prayer meetings, isn't it? They're, they're praying. You know, they've been beaten up by the Sanhedrin. What do they do? They come home. And what do they do? They don't complain. They pray. And the place is shaken, and it says they speak the word of God with great boldness. Wow! It's like Shamgar, isn't it? Truth and the Spirit together work on him, and what does he do? In the Spirit, he slays the enemy. And that's what we're to do. We're called to be warriors. We're called to be... I'm, 
I don't want to say prayer warriors because we want to be lots of warriors. But we are called to be warriors in prayer. Um, I was so thrilled last week. Stacy, you didn't know this. But Brian Acey was here and he should have prophesied. He was disobedient. He should have prophesied. He said, oh, I'm pregnant with this. Well, he should have given birth to it. But he shared with Josh how the, the Lord was just, right from the moment he got into this building, the Lord was impressing him, in this next season, I want this place to be a house of prayer. Okay? And I said to him, he should have prophesied it. But I think you, went, you, you disappeared, didn't you? You went away and prayed. Is that right? So did Josh. Two of the elders who not even known about this prophecy, Josh did, went away and prayed because, hey, we're sensing God's doing something. When I first came to this church in 96, I met Kay and Steve, uh, I was speaking at a conference, in, leaders conference in Toronto. I met them there and I, I visited, I think it was 96, and the Donnellys were leading a prayer meeting at that time. That's right. You couldn't get into that meeting. It was packed. It was wacky at times as well. There was a lot of Holy Spirit activity. I tell you what, it was so exciting. When Jesus went in the temple, what did he do? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, took a whip. And he beat up all the money changers, turn over it all. Why did he do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Caiaphas, and he's the one who did it. There's a place called the Court of the Gentiles. There's a place where the Gentiles are allowed to come. They're not allowed into the temple proper, but they're allowed to come. And, and, and they were doing such good business, Caiaphas and his boys, that they needed more space. So they closed the Court of the Gentiles and they made it a marketplace. And Jesus came in and he, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's a warrior. He's a warrior. What did he say? My father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. In other words, this is the place where the Gentiles should be reached. My father's house is to be a house of prayer. Well, that's what God is speaking to us about in these days. I, I, you know, I, every time I come here, I learn something new. You do not keep a lot of secrets. Do you know there's a men's prayer meeting on a Saturday morning? I've never seen it written about. I've never seen it advertised. I've never seen anybody uh, exhort people to be there. But apparently there is one. Who knew that? Not many. If you'd all put your hands up, I would have said, well, where were you yesterday morning? So I thought I would come. Almost doubled the numbers. But Jim runs it. Now, I thought, how strange. We have a prayer meeting that isn't even announced, not, not particularly attended, and never advertised. I started a prayer meeting. When I, when I started to lead the church at Biggin Hill 40 years ago now, I started a Saturday morning prayer meeting for the men. We did it for a year. 
six o'clock it was, six till seven, seven thirty. And that 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 it was an old it was an old chapel building and it wasn't very nice. They had to pull it down eventually. But the floor was wooden and if you knelt you got splinters in your knees. But you know, I used to leave that prayer meeting. The the floor was awash with the tears of men who were getting themselves right before God, praying about their families, praying about the way they treated their wives. And after a year, I said, done, we're done. They said, no, we can't stop this prayer meeting. It's stopped, it's done. We're now going to have a prayer meeting for the church on a Saturday morning, and we're going to pray for the lost, and we're going to pray for the sick. And we're still going. Probably only about 20 turn up perhaps a tenth of the church, but that prayer meeting, I would turn up from a trip, might have been away for months, I'd be greeted at the door of the church which I was leading, and somebody would say, are you a visitor? I'd say, who are you? And they'd tell me, I said, I know you because I prayed for you for a year or more, and now you're part of this church. Folks, I want to encourage you, receive the prophetic word, receive the scriptures, become what you were years ago, a real house of prayer. And there's nothing like corporate prayer. Because in corporate prayer, this is what happens. We encourage one another, but we get words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic words, and you need to stir the gifts that are amongst you. And when all that comes together, there is a powerhouse. Great Charles Spurgeon, he used to, from the time of being... um, in his uh, late teens, he would preach to 12,000 on a Sunday in London. And they had to build a building for him. And 6,000 would come in the morning and 6,000 would come in the evening. And he planted over 100 churches in London during his time, set up a training college. He was an amazing, he was an ap- apostle of the faith. But he once, he, somebody came to his building early for the evening meeting. It was very hot in the building. And they said, wow, Mr. Spurgeon. You must have some amazing power here in order to generate such heat. He said, would you like to come down to the um, the basement? I'll show you the powerhouse. And they thought they were going to see a big boiler and all the paraphernalia. And they went down and there was a thousand people praying. He said, that's the powerhouse. That's why we do the work. I'm just the spokesman. That's the powerhouse. And Paul and those that followed him, And those that have come ever since that have done great exploits for God, they found the power of prayer. Terry Virgo taught me to pray. Uh, Went on a trip with him to Spain when I was about 35. And he said, great, we can pray all morning. I thought, all morning? I was still into that I'm a sinner thing. Blimey, I'm a f- he's going to find out I'm a fraud. And he got down on his knees. He said, come on. And then he, s- he said, Father. Then he started to sing and praise God and worship God. And we went just through the Lord's Prayer. He said, I use the Lord's Prayer. What about you? I said, well, it's good for me. Good for me. <laughs> By the end of the week, I had a devotional life I'd never had. I'd, I was leading a church, a successful church. I was planting churches, but I had no devotional life. Because identity was something I needed to understand. I don't come to God as a sinner. I come, I come as a son. I have rights in the presence of God. Changed my life. I went back, gathered a load of 
people from my church and taught them the same thing. Changed our church. And corporate prayer is so, so exciting. So I want to encourage you in this, this season. That's why I wanted to link this warfare, because in the Old Testament, we see it there in the, in the natural, in the flesh, clearing out the land. But when we come into the New Testament, we see it there in the spirit. It's still clearing out the land, but it's tearing down the strongholds, the fortresses of darkness that so rule over people's minds. We pray and we bring people before God in situations and God will answer our prayers and he will change it. Let me just finish with this story. I was ministering in a church in the east of England and I heard about these things called street pastors. And street pastors in England have come about because on a Friday night and a Saturday night, the police don't know how to control, particularly the young people that go out, they, they're high on drugs and, and booze, and they do some pretty crummy things. And once the police are sent in, then it's mayhem, because the presence of the police provokes these young people to acts of violence. But in this one place, the police went to the to the churches and said, is there any way on a Friday night some of your people could, could help us? They said, well, what do you want us to do? Well, we'd like you to go in and uh, you, 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 you are not going to provoke these people. And so what happened in this one particular place, they, they go out on a Friday night and a, and a Saturday night, and rather than condemn, rather than judge, they just care for them. You know, they, they, might, they might be sick all over them. They will take them home. Um, and, and so what happened was that it began to spread. So all across England now, there are these what are called the street pastors. And the people who are trained up, and on Friday and Saturday night, they go out. But the, the wonderful thing in this place, I heard the testimony of a police, the guy who headed up the police in this whole area, not saved, but he said, I believe in Jesus. He's on tape, on the video. I believe in Jesus because I've seen Jesus at work. He works on our streets in this city every Friday and Saturday night. I love these people. Just amazing. This is a senior police officer in this area. He says, since, since the churches have got involved, they're tearing down strongholds. And behind those street pastors is just an army of warriors that are praying. So I want to encourage you folks, when we talk about influencing our city for Jesus, I believe this is where it begins. First of all, we get down to prayer. We gather corporately. We come with our gifts. We bring our words of knowledge. We, give our, we bring our prophetic visions. We bring what God has given us in terms of the gifts. We put it all together with prayer. And what do we see? Strongholds will come come and we will clear out the money changers and we'll clear out the filth and this will be a house of prayer and we will reach the nations which we know is one of our big objectives and reasons to run so i really want to encourage you in this new season follow your leaders in this okay and if they're not doing it themselves bully them give them a bad time <laughs> tell them ray Lowe said so I want, now, I want to challenge you this morning. 
slave or son, slave or daughter, warrior or whatever. Who's up for it? Who's up for it? Okay. Well, there's a few. That's good. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, he will prefer 150, by the way. That's not an excuse for pathetic praying numbers. All right? He'd prefer. So like Spurgeon, can you just imagine Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London, a thousand praying before the service. Let's just stand. Let's, let's, let's commit ourselves again. How often do you commit yourself to God? I do it most mornings, to be honest, because I know what I'm capable of. But I also know what I'm capable of as well. Commit myself every morning to God. And I say to God every morning, I'm available to you this morning to use if you want to use me. Paul Yongi Cho, Church of a Million. When they asked him, how did it start? He said, well, there was only three of us in the church to start off with. My my wife, my mother-in-law and me, so there wasn't a lot of pastoral ministry. So I began to pray. And the result was a church of a million that deeply affected that nation of South Korea and the world. Can you believe for something? You've seen it once. I've been here. I've seen it. Lord, you know who we are because we're yours. You, you, You own us. We're your slaves. We're here because of your love and your grace and your mercy. And we're sons and daughters of the Most High. We are such a privileged people. We come to you this morning and we say you've spoken to us through the leadership here and through prophetic words of a new season. A season where congregations are going to get planted. A season where, Lord, you want to add to your church, change, influence this city. We bring ourselves to you again. And we know we're not up to it, Lord. We know we're a bit like Shamgar without Oxcody. We don't have mighty weapons, but you do. And as we come to you, Lord, in prayer, we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you will do mighty work, that you will tear down the strongholds in this, this society and that many will come to freedom in Christ. And I want to pray this morning for anyone, Lord Jesus, who is unsure of their identity in you. I want to pray for them, Lord, that, that they will have a revelation of being a son and a daughter of the Most High God with access to the most powerful force in the universe. So I pray, Holy Spirit, will you convince this church of its, its identity, Lord, its identity in your purposes, Lord Jesus, please. Amen. 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 Thank you, folks. Sue and I are off off for a month. All right. Good. Good. Good morning. Um, This morning when I was 
in my journal and started writing. A, I saw a vision, and it was a vision that we are vessels in God, and we're in the air, but our view is of a great rock cliff that's in front of us, and that's all we can see. And God says, the uptake of God's spirit will lift you accurately above the obstacle you face. It is a large rock cliff that is engulfing your view and your future. But my spirit is quick and will not allow you to be harmed. Know that this journey is my path for you. Trust in me. Just as the children of Israel faced many challenges and delays, God was always leading them and providing for them. And the other thing that God spoke to me this morning about was ask God for wisdom. So in James it says, if you lack wisdom, if any man lacks wisdom, ask God boldly. But he says, don't ask, ask it with a double mind. Let the spirit of God penetrate you so that faith is there. Your faith, and then when you have that faith, you can ask God, God, show me what it is, what you want me to do, where you want me to go, why you want me to speak, and when you want me to just wait. And um, so I just... <coughs> Yongi Cho said this. Every day he says to God, not here, you know why, I'm not church for a million. He says, I'm only your servant, show me what you want me to do today. That is amazing. Could you pass that on to someone so we could get it typed out? That would be really helpful. It's good to get these, these prophetic words. You may not have heard it um, fully over there, but it'd be good to be good to. It's an important time, and if you do get prophetic stuff, then it's good to write it down so that we can, we can bring it to mind, we can pray through it, and also we can weigh it and ask God what we do with it. Okay, so it's a serious time, folks. Really is a serious time for you as a church. So now is the time to sharpen your, your ox toes. All right? All right, okay.